0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynica Podcast, coming to you today from a nondescript room in an anonymous office tower in midtown Manhattan. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. <laughs> All right. The Cynica Podcast is produced in proud partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our email newsletter, our app, or, of course, straight from the old tap, at our website, subchina.com. We offer uncensored reporting from and about China on the really important topics like that crazy rap song about the two meetings, the Liao Hui. You guys see that? Wow. Wow, (laughs) whose idea was that? Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, that cannot be unseen once seen, so I I do consider yourselves duly warned. Um, seriously, though, if you want to keep abreast of the major goings-on in China, sub-China is the place for it. It is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, and I have to apologize that my co-host, Jeremy Goldcorn was suddenly unable to come to New York. Uh, he actually goofed by double booking, uh, but I think we can all forgive him because he is prioritizing parenting, as a good parent should. His daughter, Viola, has a solo uh, vocal performance, tonight, her first. So he, rather than miss his daughter's recital and scar her for life, he has decided to scar me for life instead. Uh, well, anyway, uh, anyway, Jeremy. Naturally, he can't miss that. So can I? Can I get an awe? All right. All right, all right. Uh, today we are talking technology. Again, uh, get used to it, dear listeners, because technology issues have moved to the very front and center of the current tensions between the US and China. And if that is not already spectacularly obvious to to you guys, I have no idea where you've been. You need to get on the ball and pay a little more attention. So we will be spending a lot of time talking about tensions rooted in technology or about tech anxieties as an expression of deeper underlying tensions. I'm going to go on here for a little while. The technology component of the bilateral relationship is a frustrating tangle of all sorts of different concerns, some quite explicit, some unstated, but nevertheless quite conspicuous. On, on both sides, there are definitely legitimate security concerns, right, uh, which blend with purely competitive considerations, as well as some basic protectionist impulses, all with a good dose of ideology mixed in. I don't think that can be reasonably denied. Lots of ideology in there on both sides. Uh, this is all further complicated by irrational or emotional urges, again on both sides, like nationalism, and by this you know, this psychologically difficult moment where we have one incumbent superpower and another surging behind it and rising very quickly. And of course, just to make things more of a fuster cluck, we have uh, all the, the, the exigencies of domestic politics as well on both sides. Uh, so I haven't even mentioned yet the whole, you know, multilateral or or, or international dimension t- to it. T- but for, well, for for me, w- one thing is very clear, and that is that we are fortunate to have with us somebody who can help us untangle all of this. Uh, I introduced to you Sam Sachs, the amazing Sam Sachs. Who so listeners know uh, will will remember from our show not too long ago. She and and uh, Paul Triolo joined us for a good discussion about uh, Huawei and the burgeoning tech cold war. Already much has happened, and that was only a few short months ago. Uh, So, Sam is a cybersecurity policy and digital China economy fellow at New America, and prior to that she was at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, She's in great demand right now, as you can imagine, somebody of her talents would be. In fact, we're going to lose her in just a little over an hour here. She's got to run off uh, so that she can catch a flight to DC, where she's testifying before the Senate tomorrow. Is that going to be on C-SPAN, Sam? I don't know. Okay, well, maybe. Maybe we'll try to catch it on C-SPAN. Anyway, well, welcome back to Seneca, Sam. Give it up.
0: Thank you, Kaiser. It is always a pleasure to be on Seneca and to talk with you about all these issues.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, with Sam on the case, we can rest assured that the future of our world, of our bilateral relationship uh, is is secure. Um, and you're going to you set all those senators straight, right? I mean, because they're famously very good at understanding complicated technology issues, like we remember from the Zuckerberg uh, fiasco. And, and oh, remember when Sunder Pichai was there? Who, which senator was it that was like, does my phone have to able to... You're going to set them all straight, right? I'm on it. Okay, good, good, good. So joking aside, we are at a very critical moment right now. Uh, At this point, we are, I think, all too keenly aware that there's a major push from Washington for decoupling in technology on quite a number of fronts. Sam, so what are the areas where you see right now Washington pushing to actually decouple from China in technology?
0: Kaiser, you mentioned Untangle. And I think that policymakers in Washington themselves are having trouble keeping track of all of the threads. <laughs> so why don't we just take a moment and set the stage? You sure. know, when we talk about this fraught tech relationship, what does that even mean? Because there are so many different strands to this story. Right. So part one, Washington. You have an expanded review of inbound investment from China focused on technology. So this is a beefed up CFIUS yep. regime. You have a just
1: re- for people who don't.
0: The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Right. You have a beefed up export control regime, which essentially is companies need licenses to do all kinds of different transactions. Now there is a category called emerging and foundational technologies, which is in play. And we'll talk more about that. Yeah. You have broad pressure. To unwind global supply chains, think back to that that bombshell Bloomberg hack story from last fall, right? Um, which sort of which they never actually which uh, to this day I'm went whatever happened why is why is Bloomberg not retracted that story? When you, uh, uh,
1: we did it for them, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> no, no, nobody's taking that story seriously now.
0: Right. You're you have Chinese researchers and scientists and students facing all kinds of scrutiny under what I think is an, a pretty hostile environment on campuses for Chinese students, particularly in the STEM STEM fields, Um, you have a Department of Justice, I mean, I'm just rattling on here because the list goes on. You've got a Department of Justice initiative, which is sort of a green light to pursue all Chinese criminal economic cases, um, whether you're talking about companies or individuals. I mean, the list goes on, and I think there's just this general pressure and fear around the sort of China tech boogeyman.
1: Right. It's it's a really strange thing that, that, that we feel this way about China, because I feel like The narrative has flipped in a couple of important ways. Just yesterday, it seems like we were so dismissive of China's ability to innovate. I mean, just three years ago, you had Joe Biden going around making speeches, graduation speeches, talking about how, you know, basically patting us on the back. And there's a lot of hubris talking about how, well, we are free, therefore we are innovative. China is not free, therefore they are not innovative. Uh, And then there's this, this other kind of Another way of understanding the relationship between technology and political authoritarianism, which was that technology was supposed to liberate people from authoritarianism, right? I mean, we, we thought that for a long time, and that has unwound, too, completely. It feels like we're in this moment right now where everything that we used to believe about the relationship between technology... Authoritarian politics has just blown up.
0: See, and I would argue it hasn't even blown up so much as that there's two narratives that we deploy depending on when one serves a certain interest. So we use the China's a copycat nation, and the state-led industrial planning model will never lead to innovation when it serves us. And then we use the, oh, China's actually going to take over the world with robots narrative when that serves us. (laughs) (laughs) And they're interchangeable sometimes.
1: So we've only gotten to part one, though. Uh, so that part one is okay, Washington. Okay, so that's
0: the Washington scene. But this is why I think it's really a perfect storm, because right. in Beijing, and completely apart from anything going on in Washington... This is a leadership of Xi Jinping that has said, we want to reduce our reliance on foreign suppliers and what he's calling core technologies. What are those? There's no official definition. So my colleagues, Paul Triolo and Graham Webster and Rajay Kremers, they've done some excellent work on this sort of translating authoritative speeches that Xi Jinping has. And so I point you to our New America website where we have this repository. There's a great translation of a speech that Xi Jinping gave last May around the ZTE incident. Anyway, this is a very political that was one of the
1: ones that was laid bare. That's obviously a core technology. Uh, if you guys remember in the ZTE case, which was sort of a harbinger of things to come with Huawei, there was a again it was for for violation of export controls, and ZTE was brought to its knees and practically folded because it lacked certain core technologies, certain
0: components. components and right. if you if you open up a ZTE phone, for example, um, and you look at what's inside, this is a this is an example of a global supply chain right there. Right. So core technologies, but it's not just advanced semiconductors. There's there's whole other things that could potentially fit in. I mean, certain algorithms related to AI, uh-huh. certain kinds of operating systems, right? So, But this is fluid and it's political. At the same time, you have a government in China that's building out what I think is one of the most comprehensive legal and regulatory systems in the world for cyberspace. And it's rules around online content, critical infrastructure, data. The cybersecurity law is the centerpiece of this system, but the reality is it's just one piece of dozens and dozens of regulations and measures and actually hundreds of standards.
1: We've heard a lot about these the cybersecurity law, but it's one of a number of other laws all passed in that same time time frame that have to do with counterterrorism, with uh, There Um, was the national National
0: security Security law, and the counterterrorism law, and the cybersecurity law. And for all of these laws, there's a a significant focus on tech, whether it's decryption or data transfers, although um, the counterterrorism law, everyone thought data localization was going to show up in that law, and then they didn't, and it came in later. So, but yes, this is this suite of sort of efforts by the Chinese government to say, hey, technologies are developing. We need tools to maintain our ability to monitor and control them. And so there's a rapid build out of a legal regime around that. So I think this is a perfect storm. You take that, you take the Washington view, and that's why technology and cybersecurity is really at the core of this deepening conflict with the United States and China.
1: It seems though that it's you don't hear a lot of explicit calls for decoupling in China though, or do you? Or am I just not hearing them? I, I feel, feel like that that is louder here than there.
0: That this is a Washington thing.
1: Okay. It's not even here in New York. It's it's no In Chinese
0: media, the term decoupling is starting to show up, but it's more in reaction I think to what is being perceived coming from this side
1: it's not even a U.S. thing, right? You're not hearing these same conversations happening in Silicon Valley, for example.
0: So, yeah, and that's an important point, is what does sort of industry and the tech industry think about all of this? And I think sometimes we get in our beltway bubble, um, and the reality is when we think about technology development, whether it's joint research, supply change, sort of collaboration of scientists, these don't really map nicely onto political borders, right? right? And these are really diffuse networks that when you, try to decouple it, in some ways there's just a disconnect here. And so I think there's a lot of push-pull. And so one of the things I'm expecting at the Senate hearing tomorrow is more discussion of, OK, what are the, what are the costs? What does it mean? What are the consequences from an innovation and competitive standpoint if we really try to go forward with decoupling?
1: And so we should talk about that. Uh, what could happen here? Are we talking about a, a digital iron curtain coming down and dividing the world into two? Uh, what's the worst-case scenario here?
0: Digital iron curtain is sounds really scary. I don't think that this is something that we're going to have to be prepared for in some way. And look, right now. Y- It's easy to to think, oh, wait a second, the US and China are about to sign this trade deal. China said, what was it you told me earlier? They're going to, tech transfers are going to be illegal. They're getting rid of Made in China 2025, right? (laughs) It it doesn't, this digital iron curtain scenario is something that I think is is not going away. So what does that mean? Um, Let's talk about 5G. We have the US going out to allies and partners around the world and saying, don't use Chinese telecoms in your network. This is, could be a situation where governments are gonna go, hey, are we gonna choose vendors from China or the US? And you're gonna have different standards and norms and different um, infrastructure that comes along with that.
1: So far, it hasn't been a uniform success.
0: No, I think that the Trump administration did not anticipate how difficult it was going to be. At, you know, at the last couple of weeks, I think there have been a stream of sort of counter narratives to that. I was actually just in London and had a fascinating meeting at the UK National Cybersecurity Center.
1: That's a GCHQ thing. Right?
0: It's GCHQ's headquarters. Right. And really interesting to just understand the UK's perspective on this. They've had Huawei in their network for over 15 years with right, British right. Telecom and have designed a sort of risk mitigation strategy where you understand clear-eyed, right, what is the threat of specific kinds of equipment um, and also about the ability, if you're in a warlike scenario, hypothetically in the future, what does it mean to have an adversary have access to your networks? And so they've sort of designed a system um, with all of those things in mind. And I think that what you're going to see around the world is some countries, like Australia, are going to do an outright ban. And
1: they fall right in line. Fall right. in line. New Zealand has. New
0: Z- I think that the U.K. and Germany are probably, you know, those are not necessarily going to fall in line. This is a risk mitigation approach, not right. a white ban. And right. then some countries are just going to say, you know, ignore the risk altogether. So the digital Iron Curtain concept is going to probably be a lot more nuanced, not to mention the fact that even if the countries that outright ban it, they're going to have to go... And touch networks with multinational companies in other countries that do have that. So,
1: even even here in the U.S., we're not. I mean, the people that I'm talking to uh, are are not talking about an outright ban of Huawei gear either. They're talking about first tier Mm. networks. They're talking about critical systems. They're not talking about the seventy odd uh, rural networks in America that already have a lot of Huawei LTE gear in them, right?
0: Right. And actually, maybe the U.S. and the U.K. perspective, if you sort of strip all the rhetoric aside, might be more aligned than some might think. Hmm.
1: That's that's interesting. Um, and you, it's just sort of being inflated for, you know, sort of fluffed for, for political display or?
0: Potentially. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have been talking a little bit about, about Huawei, but, you know, Huawei is really, uh, it's become sort of the avatar for this whole uh, burgeoning tech cold war right now. It's it's where the focus of all of our attention has gone. Uh, Huawei, of course, a lot has happened since the last time we talked. Let's let's catch up quickly. They had this appallingly horrible PR disaster whereby they invited a whole bunch of journalists uh, to come tour Huawei's campus. Now, that is not in in itself a particularly bad move. In fact, I mean, it's something that tech companies do all the time. But this was sort of a, a misfire because of some of the individuals they, they invited who were sort of known to be already very, very hostile, who had their positions quite clear and they sort of used it to try and publicly shame Huawei. They, they've, uh, what, what else has happened? up? Uh, They've unsealed a whole bunch, a total of 23 uh, indictments. There were uh, a bunch that were in the Eastern District of New York, uh, across the river in Brooklyn. And uh, those were all related to Meng Wanzhou and to the alleged v- violation of export controls of, of sanctions to uh, to Iran. But there were also a whole, whole bunch that were unsealed in the Western District of Washington uh, over Huawei's alleged theft of a robotic arm belonging to a robot named Tappy. Uh, I love that. I know Tappy, Tappy. Like, armless Tappy. Uh, so this is this is all going on. Uh now Huawei is saying that they're going to sort it's being reported that Huawei is going to sue the United States government for barring them without providing any reasons uh from from secure networks. So that that's uh, all, all stuff is happening. Uh what, but the, the main thing though, it also focuses on Meng Wanzhou cause Canada has now gone ahead with an extradition hearing that's going to be taking place any day now, right?
0: I mean, I think Hmong is a impossible situation. Our right. friend Paul ha- Paul Triolo has called her a ticking time bomb yeah, because, look, yeah. it's an impossible binary. You send her back to Beijing, uh-huh. right? Can't Either Canada releases her or Trump works a deal, and there is major backlash from the national security community in Washington. Right. How are you using a law enforcement issue as a bargaining chip and trade.
1: That's what the left will say. The right will say, how are you, yeah, right.
0: Right, exactly. And then, but say she is is actually extradited to the U.S. This is massively escalatory. There is no way that Beijing cannot respond forcefully to that. So, in, this is an impossible situation. Meanwhile, she's in Canada in limbo. Um, then you have you know, the ambassador um, to China from Canada right. fired when he gets caught saying, oh, the solution to this is we just release Hmong and then Beijing release the two Canadian detainees. Canada's in a tough position. I mean, I think this is... Well,
1: I'm not in a position to be fired, so I'm going to say that that is the best <laughs> I mean, possible solution. And,
0: and I agree with you, Kaiser, because I think... The Washington Beijing like binary is impossible, right. and there is a you know on. I learned from your podcast with uh, Julian Ku, mm-hmm. who said you know there is a political justification to reject an extradition request.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm really hoping that that's what they what they decide to pull. What Canada decides wisely to, to, to pull. Uh, but this is this is deeply problematic. In any case, there is no easy way out, um, and Trump. If, if she is actually extradited to the United States, he is not going to be able to let her go with no cost, as you said. Exactly.
0: There's one more thing. I, I was at an event recently, and someone from Huawei showed up at the event, and we were all very surprised. And he was quiet the whole time. And then he had one question. He said, is there going to be a denial order? Because the denial order, like with ZTE, that's another nuclear option. So if we're thinking of the spectrum of options here, that, that's it. And I think that Huawei is very concerned about this. Trump has stumbled into some unintended leverage, I think, with Beijing. Uh-huh. He may not have known that Hmong was arrested when he went into that dinner with Xi Jinping to negotiate this, you know, truce in the trade war. Uh-huh. But that has become Hmong, but also the broader denial order, going out and telling partners around the world don't use Huawei and your 5G networks. Like This has become the piece of leverage, I think, right right now that we have in the trade talks.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's entirely possible that Canada will decide that because there's hair on it now, because uh, he has talked about it as political leverage, that maybe that will be Canada's out.
0: And then he will have ironically created the outcome he wanted because now he probably exactly. wants her out too. So he's
1: actually really clever. He, <laughs> so, yes, he is. <laughs> in, in spite of all appearances, he's, he's actually just super, super clever. You know, I think it's, it's come down to uh, where you stand on Huawei, where you stand on this sort of burgeoning tech Cold War. Uh, is, it, it boils down to what you think of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean it seems like that it's it's come to that at this point if you believe that they are the source of evil in the world that so many Americans seem to believe they are then there's no way you're ever going to cut Huawei slack and if you think that yeah they they've gotten pretty deeply illiberal in in recent years but I don't think they are out to supplant U.S.-led or, or the international world order, the, 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 they're they're ultimately going to play along with the, the basic rules of the international order. Then you can see your way to you know cutting Huawei some slack. But it's interesting uh, what what people seem to be arguing over more and more these days is when push comes to shove, does any Chinese company have the ability, the wherewithal at all, to push back on Beijing if it says we want you to use your presence in in American networks to conduct espionage or to you know conduct sabotage or to take down you know to, in the event of, of, of conflagration right we're we're constantly being quoted this article 7 from the National Intel was a national intelligence law well the-
0: Kaiser you and the director of the FBI right. get these laws all confused <laughs> because See? at the second at I'm there, there was a right. well no this is important because at a recent press conference announcing new indictments against Huawei the director of the FBI cited the cybersecurity law.
1: Oh, that's not it. Which
0: is not I mean there is a sort of legal argument that can, could be made to talk about maybe the cybersecurity law in this type of situation could amplify the national blah blah blah. The the point is I think everyone is getting all of these laws confused as they're trying to point to some reason to justify why a Chinese company would be beholden to Beijing to push the red button and take down, you know, global, you know, global global infrastructure in, networks, the, in the right. US, right? Um, so but I think this-,
1: this Article Seven, it it says well, something like, uh, any organization or citizen shall support, assist, and cooperate with the state intelligence work in accordance with the law. And people, you know, I think I think you were one of the people who's pointed out there's a kind of delicious irony in that. I won't steal your thunder. Well, what was it that you said? you probably phrase it better than I did.
0: Well, people love to talk about China's not ha- not being you know, a-, a country based on law, that it's a Wild West in a right. legal sense. And yet, in this situation, we're parsing obscure clauses of various laws to explain why the company would be. So it's like, at on one hand, they have no laws. On the other, law determines everything. In this
1: one instance, suddenly rule right. of law really applies. Right. right. Yeah, that is pretty ironic. And it reminds me a little bit about what you said uh, earlier about uh, the- these narratives You can sort of pick the one that that suits your your political purposes in the moment.
0: But this gets at this really important question, which I think people here have a lot of questions around. What is the relationship between the party and tech companies? And, I mean, you and I have talked about this. When push comes to shove, if a request is made based on national security grounds, like the companies have to fall in line, but I think what's missing is there is much more push pull in that dynamic than I think people realize. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and you saw that from your time at. Oh Bandu. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, to the extent that you can share, what would be some illustrations of that?
1: Well, look, I mean, the the fact is they will throw you under the bus pitilessly if it if it suits them, and and I think at the end of the day, you don't have you know you you can't absolutely say no. But there are many cases where you can push back and where they will be reasonable. Um, you know, things like uh, censorship requests. They will all, you know, make all sorts of them, but they'll come into the negotiation. It, I mean, it's something you can negotiate. You can say, There's, there, here are the reasons why we don't think that you should ban all searches for this particular word, or here are some reasons why we think that it would, be, it would behoove you to include these on the white list of, of websites that will show up in results. Uh, there, there is room for negotiation, but again, they will throw you under the bus if if they care to. And there, I've been, you know, at my desk doing my work when that has happened on a couple of, of pretty uh, spectacular occasions. And so You can't it's share, it, can you? I, I can't. No. I can't share. Okay, so it.
0: can I give an anecdote because you can't talk oh, about sure, yours? Oh, sure, absolutely. So recently, there was last summer. You guys may have remembered there were two passengers killed on Didi, and so after this, there were police investigations, and the police said to Didi, "Turn over your data: the user, the the passenger, the driver, the route, the vehicle data." Uh-huh. And Didi didn't do it; they refused to, and there were multiple requests that were made, and finally, I think it was like in one case the third request, they said, "Fine." They showed up and they brought the data in hard copy in boxes and it was like non-standard basically illegible it turned out that Didi had been in violation of this rule which said ride sharing companies have to provide real-time access to the government they have to hook up their data platforms and they weren't doing it and so now this rectification process has started but there was a lot of debate and so in Chinese scholars legal scholars we're saying, wait a second. If Didi is to fall in line on this data sharing agreement, that's a violation of China's cyber security law, because the cyber security law has some has a framework around the conditions where co- data is collected and shared, and all of that. So again, I think there's just much more churn than people right, sort of understand. Right,
1: right, right. Uh, speaking of of data security and data privacy, uh, you've been working on something along with Graham Webster uh, with a, a delightful acronym. It's the personal Information safety and security. No, I'm sorry. The
0: personal information security specification.
1: You guys can work that out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, so last uh, last year, China came out with their first data privacy standard, essentially, Um, and it it has it's a standard, so it's voluntary guidelines for industry. But we can talk about the fact that a lot of companies and services have actually been audited along those lines, which may make it not voluntary. Right. Um,
1: But voluntary in China means something very different. Exactly.
0: But this it's it's rules for consent to collect information, how it is used and processed, and shared. So um, a couple of us at New America did a translation of it. You can see it on our website. Um, We've been in close communication with the lead drafter of the standard, Dr. Hong Hong Cheng, And actually, I first encountered him because I wrote a very quick blog post after this standard came out, and I compared it to GDPR, which is the strictest privacy regime in the world. The
1: European standard, right?
0: Exactly. And I I looked at some of the clauses, and I was like, wait a second. This is actually, in some cases, if you drill down on it, more far-reaching than gdpr interesting and i got a very angry wechat message from him saying you're wrong and biased and it turned out to his credit i actually was wrong in some of these cases and so we had a back and forth i wrote a sort of updated version incorporating some of his views to kind of understand what his intent was in writing these rules and the idea is there is a real push right now in china to expand users uh, Protect the protection of their information online, mm. and to put in place some kind of framework so that companies can't just go and have a free-for-all with users' data, which I think many people might be surprised to hear that that exists.
1: Another thing that they might be surprised to hear is that the do- data localization specifications that were in the, the cybersecurity law, as it was supposed to apply to American companies or foreign companies haven't been maybe as enforced as rigorously as as people had, had worried about. We all read about yeah. Apple putting all of the uh, data from the iTunes store or whatever in uh, the iCloud into a data center in Guangxi province, but we haven't heard a lot about other localization demands that have been right. strenuously enforced. So the
0: cybersecurity law has a provision that says all personal and important data produced by what are called critical information infrastructure operators has to be stored locally, mm-hmm. Um, and books. And then it has to undergo a security assessment before export. So when this first came out for companies, this is a big deal because it's it would basically mean building expensive new data centers in China, cutting off cross-border data flows. But the reality is it those broad data localization requirements have not actually been fully implemented yet. And actually, since the law came out, there's a regulation sort of specifying, spelling out what the scope of these security reviews would be and it's still pending, it's highly debated right now in China because there's not consensus. What is important data? Um, Does the government actually have the ability to review all kinds of data going in and out of the country? Um, I have been told that this is one of the items being negotiated right now between um, Beijing and Washington as part of these trade talks, that it's been folded into the tech transfer section, and that this is an area where it's still pending in China, and this, there could be some space. So one of the outcomes I would look for, if we are to see stru- progress on the so-called structural issues on uh-huh. the tech side, one would be, is the Chinese government going to agree to allow more kinds of commercial data out of the country without right. these sort of arduous security audits? Do
1: you think that they're now not enforcing for lack of ability or for uh, basically to appease or to sort of folding under the, the loud complaints of, of, of international companies.
0: So it's not just international companies, it's domestic companies that have been complaining a lot about it. You think about companies like Alibaba or other financial institutions that need to do global transactions. They can't do that. They can't be sort of these national champions operating outside of China if there's restrictions on data flows. So I think that's been an important source of, of friction there. The other thing is defining, again, what Kinds of data go in and out. There's just not. A, it's a capacity issue too.
1: Let's go back just a, a couple of steps. To we, we were talking about uh Didi and that that incident where they were not uh, in compliance, and they they don't seem to have been punished for it for for, for their non-compliance for this. Um, this this is there's another issue that's related to that, which is this whole question of. I mean, we we learned recently, <gasps> gasp, couldn't believe it, that Jack Ma is a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Ooh. Wow, what a what a surprise! Um, I, I'm I'm reminded though of that time when when we we were we had that uh, Alibaba president actually who was, he was president of a division uh, on a panel that you chaired at CSIS who flatly denied that they even had a, a, a a party organization at well, That was
0: an amazing moment. So I ho- I first met Kaiser because I hosted a panel on innovation in China's digital economy at CSIS. And it was Kaiser and we had um, Paul, Triolo. Paul Triolo and then our friend from Alibaba Cloud. Mm-hmm. And this was an incredible moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was very strange. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But anyway, what do we make of this? I mean, I I, I know, you know there was a party organization where I worked at, at Baidu. You know what they did? They did really great, really interesting stuff. like. they would do these sort of uh, dating events where they would pair these really talented and and high-earning engineers without Beijing huqou's with... Uh, local women working for the government, for you know, for government organizations who had Beijing hukou's but were getting government salaries, and so there were a lot of happy marriages made out of out of uh, by by our our party committee. It was really great. <laughs> no, but this is the sort of thing that they did. It was it was kind of funny. otherwise, that you didn't you never heard from them. I mean, they may have had some hand in government relations, but I, I I've never heard of anything. Like but
0: that. I think this is an important point because a lot of the times when we in going back to the sort of Washington Beltway discussion. When there's a bad actor identified, it's, ooh, this Chinese company is connected to the party. They have a party cell. Isn't this just government relations in China? Is this what you need to do as a company?
1: Well, like much, yeah, what, yeah. I mean, it all comes not. back down to that, that how you view the party. I mean, if, you, uh, if you're yeah. look uh, after Richard McGregor wrote this book on the party where he talked about how all the important executives have this thing called a red machine direct phone line to Xi Jinping on on their desk. I actually I think this is a pre-Xi Jinping book, but. Uh, I suddenly was flooded with phone calls from people asking, "Hey, have you ever seen the red machine on Robin Lee's desk?" No, I'm I'm, (laughs) sorry, I've not. uh, uh, And then you know, then they would always be. So, how many of your board members are communist party members? None. I don't believe you. Uh, None, really, none. You can hear the board members here. There's this Japanese guy. There's this American guy who, like the scion of the Walmart company. And uh, no, no, no party members. What about the shadow board? Oh geez. Okay. All right. I, I give up. Yeah. It was it was sort of like that all the time. You know, so there's another, you know, one of the, the narratives. There's a lot of concern, of course, about uh, so-called techno-authoritarianism. We had this narrative where, you know, technology was supposed to liberate everybody. We kind of believed that all the way up through the Arab Spring. Now it's very decidedly unfashionable. We we now know that actually technology is the main means by which authoritarian regimes will oppress the people, right? And, you know, there's 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 certainly a lot of surveillance. There's a lot of heavy-handed use of, you know, technology. Uh, biometrics, DNA collection in in Xinjiang, there's a lot of this stuff happening. There are a couple things I want to ask you. One is about the export of of techno-authoritarianism. To what extent have we seen China actually actively exporting their ability to surveil and to censor to other countries? And then we can talk about something domestic, but first this.
0: If you look around the world, there is certainly a trend where you have governments doing things that look very similar to the way that China governs its digital economy. You have a proliferation of laws that look a lot like China's cybersecurity law. Vietnam is a great example. So data localization requirements, the use of domestic standards. Basically, you have... The sort of proliferation of a model, model that says you can have a thriving digital economy, but you also can cont- have control and the ability to use surveillance technologies. So the question is, and Freedom House wrote a report earlier this year that talked about this sort of spread, the rise of digital authoritarianism.
1: Internet sovereignty is the, the, the preferred term of art for China, right? Oh,
0: exactly, So, but the question that I have is To what extent is this occurring because of a deliberate plan to export a model or export technology from China? Or is this happening because of other factors that make the models sort of innately appealing? Right. Right. And I think there probably is a combination of both. There are cases where you have the CAC working with officials, like um, in Tanzania, for example. There's been a big diplomatic effort with the CAC and hmm. others, sort of saying, "Hey, let's we're going to help you set up your sort of cybersecurity system." But then there are other cases where I think that there's a as, as sort of you look at the you know the rise, things, Facebook being used for genocide in Myanmar, right, yeah. or other things where there's there's an appeal to the control that comes along with it that may have nothing to do with China. Our friend Patrick Lozoda has talked about the idea that you have surveillance technologies. Demand for surveillance technologies might come from the fact that governments, say, in North Africa are working with the U.S. government on counterterrorism. And that creates, <laughs> now, an there, a, right? that creates a demand for sort of surveillance law enforcement oriented technologies. Again, nothing to do with China. So to what extent is this being exported deliberately versus is there a sort of alternate version of thinking about the internet and these technologies.
1: Right. I mean, if you are a a, 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 a country that, that's just sort of coming into its own as a, a digital power, you're looking around the world. You're looking at how uh, Russia has meddled in the American election. You're looking at uh, how Facebook has sort of, you know, Facebook and Twitter, have have made us more fractured and tribal. And they're thinking, you know, maybe the Chinese model isn't so unappealing, right? Yeah, and then this Uh, sort of raises this
0: question of, to what extent is there a sort of pure, completely free... Sort of um, open internet, anyway, in the United States or in the West. Well,
1: know? it's close enough here. I, mean, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well,
0: compa- com- compared to other, for sure. Sure, 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 sure.
1: sure. Yeah. yeah. So the other question that I wanted to ask you about was we also re- read a lot of reporting about the atrocity in Xinjiang, and uh, it's sort of just a sort of a toss off line that you see in a lot of reports that say uh, there's concerns that Xinjiang is being used as a a proving ground or a, a sort of experimental laboratory for these new technologies of coercion that will then be rolled out to the rest of, of China. Is this just idle speculation? Is there, is there real reason to fear that this is likely to happen? Or?
0: So right now, when we think about the rules for how new technologies like facial recognition or biometrics are going to be used, those rules have not been written yet. And I think that what's happening in Xinjiang is... Really concerning, right? You're, this is this is mass detention enabled by technology. Whether it's sort of scanning someone's phone to find out if they're using encrypted apps, um, QR codes, facial recognition, sort of high-tech data monitoring systems, um, and I think at a time when. China and other governments are trying to think about the rules around ethics and safety and security and discrimination and how algorithms can be used. This is really concerning. Yes. Um, and we know that China has said, we want to have a sort of, quote, right to speak in international forums related to well, internet discourse governance. Power really discourse right. power. Discourse yeah. power, yes. However you want to translate that phrase. Yeah. yeah. You know, the question is, is this a sort of vision, a communist party vision for the use of these technologies that we're seeing on display in Xinjiang? that could be broader as we think about norms around these technologies. And that's frankly concerning. At the same time, you know, I was just last week in California at Berkeley Law for a fascinating track two between Beijing University Law and Berkeley Law. We're talking about the norms around AI. And there are scholars and practitioners in China that are really grappling with questions like um, algorithmic bias. And do you have the right to contest a decision that's made about you based on an algorithm? Wow. Um, and there is a, so that's a very positive development, right? And so I just think it's not black and white.
1: We don't hear a lot about that that discussion happening in China. I mean, I, I've I've you know brought this point up before, and and had you know people argue back. Yes, it is happening. So people like uh, Jeff Ding, who who writes this really great newsletter on AI in China, uh, has said, well, no, there are people actually who are talking about uh, the ethics around AI, who are talking about. Uh, I mean they're not maybe talking about armies of killer robots or something yeah. in the demon but they are thinking through these things like algorithmic bias uh why aren't we hearing more about that?
0: So Jeff Ding and Paul Triolo and I actually published a paper last year where we translated and analyzed sections of this white paper that came out, and it was a white paper on AI standards and ethics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of it, frankly, is it's in Chinese, right. um, and it doesn't fit into our Washington narrative. But these discussions are ongoing, and I think that there are attempts to really grapple with those issues. There, it's just still so early, yeah. so we don't really know what direction it's going to go.
1: So tomorrow morning, you're going to get in, in front of a. a Oh, um, Senate! <laughs> oh
0: man, this is a much nicer audience to be talking but about this stuff asking, within the Senate. <laughs> uh,
1: but what are you going to tell them? Because you know, look, neither of us exactly uh, romanticize. Oh, we're, we don't. We, we're, we're not. We're clear-eyed about there really are ways in which uh, China will deploy technologies that are not in America's interests, that are antithetical to Chinese yes. to American values. Uh, there are. Pieces of American technology that we do absolutely want to protect. Uh, you have popularized, helped to popularize the phrase, and I think you attribute to Bob Gates, right, the, the former uh, national security national security advisor, then the secretary F- of defense. Secretary of defense. Secretary. Secretary, see, I'm, I'm terrible with this stuff. Secretary of defense. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can go back and edit this out and make me so, sound a lot smarter. You want to take that one from the yeah, top? Taylor. I want. I'll I'll leave it for you know, my public shaming. The Idea of a small yard and high fence, right? Which you've attributed to Bob Gates. So, uh, I've been running around telling people this. Uh, can you unpack that idea a little bit more? And, and how much of are you going to be talking about that tomorrow? And, and yeah. as, as part of your approach, and maybe you could also talk about what are some of the things uh, that you think we really ought to be focusing our, our attention on that we can actually do something about yes. instead of just like mindlessly fretting.
0: So the title of the hearing is China. Challenges to U.S. Commerce. I think originally they were going to call it threats to U.S. Commerce and they took that out. Um, But if you hear hear my testimony tomorrow, you're going to think I'm a real hawk. Uh, because I'm going to outline some very serious challenges to U.S. commerce. I'm going to walk through the cybersecurity standards regime, which is a really Im- important way in which sensitive business information is often compelled out of companies. It's not just through jo- joint ventures. It's not just because they say, hey, give us all your technology, but there's a whole standards regime that companies sure. have to comply with, and we can get in the weeds on what that means. I'm going to talk about data restrictions. I'm going to talk about this issue of the sort of norms and around emerging technologies. I'm going to Talk about Xinjiang. But ultimately, I'm going to say look, having a constructive bilateral trade and investment relationship with China, particularly with technology, is in the interests of the United States. And We cannot take an approach which is going to use um, blanket bans, discrimination based on national origin. We need to use tools like law enforcement as the scalpel that they were intended to be because of the integration of our two systems. And otherwise, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. So that's number one, is that's the sort of guiding principle. My second recommendation is, We are undergoing pretty significant trade talks right now. And Ambassador Lighthizer said last week in testimony um, that despite what some may think, they're not just cosmetic. They're really going for pretty granular, weedy stuff right now. Structural
1: change. Structural right. change.
0: Um, and so I'm going to say, let's. what are some targeted things that we should be asking? How do we structure our demands? Um, let's focus on some of these standards that are problematic, that require encryption keys and source code and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's try to get Beijing to narrow the scope of what kind of commercial data um, can actually can be sent out in the, of, of the country. And in increase the transparency around the kind of audits that are involved with that. Um, I'm going to talk about setting up a sort of verification system around IP. I mean, my gosh, how do you even do that? But, you know, maybe it's about putting people in jail and not just using fines to demonstrate teeth.
1: Not just public shaming, not just right, right.
0: Exactly. Um, You know, I'm going to talk about the need to, we talk about what's going on in Xinjiang and sort of these sort of scary norms around AI. Isn't it in our interest to know what the thinking is in Beijing on that? Because if we lose sight of it and they go off when they're thinking about ethics and safety in AI and they go off in a way different direction from us, that's dangerous. Right. So I don't, I think we want to be. That's a
1: reason to keep coupled. right It's a reason Absolutely. to keep
0: coupled yeah. and I think to, you know, work with, with folks that are grappling with these issues over there. I'm going to talk about the importance of multilateralism um, and why we need to work with partners and allies. Now, I don't think that Trump has helped us in that regard. you, see,
1: Sam, you know, None of this... <laughs> yeah, I think if you think that this is going to make you sound like a hawk tomorrow well, in D.C., you have not been paying attention to what's happening in D.C. right now. Well, eh? the <laughs>
0: recommendation section, not. Right. I guess mostly laying out the challenges right, is right, going right. is, is to be tougher. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, it certainly will be. I feel like right now we are just locked in a classic prisoner's dilemma with China. It's like there is a, a an outcome where we neither of us defects or betrays, us, to use the language of, of the game theory, where China and the United States both decide to extend good faith and to place some trust in the other and, and assume good faith on part of the part of the other. In such an outcome, then the flowers bloom and the little furry animals of the forest come out to frolic in, in the in the sunlight glade. <laughs> I mean that would be a wonderful outcome there's another outcome in which one extends trust and the other betrays, screws them, right? I mean, that's an entirely possible outcome as well. That, unfortunately, in the the logic of the prisoner's dilemma, has the, the screwer on top and the screwy, you know, the worst possible outcome. And then there's the, unlike, the ugly, most likely outcome, which is mutual betrayal. That the logic of the, the, the prisoner's dilemma dictates that your best option here is to both— refuse to extend in good faith. They both act in bad faith. So what's the way out of this? I mean, I feel like the only way is just to prove to people that this shooting of ourselves in the foot, the costs are just too too great. Uh, so I mean, I feel like what, I, I, what people like us need to arm ourselves with are the... A, a good telling of what those costs really are.
0: Yeah, and here I think I realized I didn't fully answer your question about what is the small yard high fence because okay. I think it it means you know identifying what is what do we want to protect. Um, being selective about it, mm-hmm. and then being very aggressive about protecting it, right. right? And so I think that is, in my mind, the way out, um, is to be clear-eyed about those red lines and what is essential to national security. So one of the things that's being discussed right now is export control reforms. Right. E- and so what kinds of technologies do we need to, to restrict companies from sharing with Maybe gives
1: us an idea what the current export control regime looks like. What is... Currently restricted, that you think maybe not ought not to be.
0: So right now, where things stand is in November, the Commerce Department issued this list, and they were very broad categories. They include, you know, certain parts, you know, AI and sort of voice recognition and that, and semiconductors. But these are broad categories, right. and now the they're, they're, the question is, how do we whittle AI that down? Is a I mean, do, I mean do you, this, so this is, is the mean? impossibility of it, and you've had right. is it even possible to determine for something like AI what is essential to a military advantage or not? I mean, because
1: it's a general-purpose technology, right? This
0: is the, as my friend Martin Chorzempa at the Peterson Institute says, this is the algorithms in Netflix right. recommendations, exactly. right? Or you know the AI-infused software involved with fraud detection that companies need to use, sort of, to prevent problems on their network. So how do you do that? And I, you don't. You do, I, right. Maybe that's the, that's the the answer is you don't.
1: Are there other things that fall into that category too? Of. of- things are just too general purpose for us to even, at this point, that the, the bar doors open, the horses open. So left.
0: what I'm most concerned about are things like um, having foreign nationals in your research lab. That would be a deemed export. So does that mean that you can't sort of have the best and brightest researchers from around the world working on cutting-edge technologies because they're foreign? Foreign nationals, right? right? This is like, uh, you know, th- that to me is very problematic. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so that's where I think we need to make sure that those conversations around what practically does this mean, and what is the cost that you're incurring around it have to happen?
1: So we've talked about last on the last show. Uh, Paul uh, talked about the Eurasia Group's notion of, of innovation winter. This idea that if we decide to decouple and if we decide to build our own supply chain, the entire uh, recreate the supply chains that we're, we're currently using in Duan and Shenzhen, and some you know build them in a the third country or build them in the United States, it could be done. It would just take you know decades all our best talent and tons of money and that it would crowd out in uh investment in 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 R&D that we would then you know sort of lose an innovative edge because we we're too busy doing this. And that that seems to me one of the big costs of decoupling. What what are some of the other costs that we should be thinking about? I
0: mean I think in an extension a related thing is what's happening at universities. Right. And I think universities are kind of at the forefront of this where there's a lot of Um, really cutting-edge research going on, and now immigration policy is being caught up in that. So I think that's an an area we lose. Can we have world-class universities working on this stuff if these are now hostile environments, right? So, uh, and then I think it's also about thinking about the applications, and if we are not able to sort of work, if we have these segmented 5G networks, then the applications that go on top of 5G are going to be delayed as well. So uh, there's many, many costs that I I just don't think are being thought through.
1: Yeah, you gonna what are you gonna tell? The, what are you gonna close with tomorrow when you talk to the Senate?
0: Oh gosh, you I don't a good
1: closing argument. Uh, <laughs>
0: I, I, you know what? I, I think I have something about investing in ourselves, and yeah. we can't we can't just play defense because everything we've talked about so far is a very defensive, That's scared not, posture. So but, how do we get
1: back on offense? You
0: know, we need to. We have this is why investing in our own R and D now. Do we want to have our own version indigenous of r- indigenous R and D? Do we want to have our own AI development plan? Which I think now Trump We're is now sort of, they're talking about. Really. Yeah, the Trump. I think we might have a, a, a AI.
1: So we should try to out China, China. Let's out it? China, China. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but match. ultimately,
0: I think it comes down to our openness. Our openness as a system is one of our greatest strengths. I
1: absolutely agree. That is our greatest strength. That's you know the stuff that makes me tear up when I oh, was at the, the Democratic National Convention in in 2016. When I, I mean I, f- I feel like that is really truly where our innovative energy comes from is in our diversity and in our openness. So, Sam, what an absolute delight to have you uh, back on the program. Uh, and like I, I, I will. We'll, uh, go on to our recommendations section of our show. But first, before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you enjoy the Seneca Podcast, the other shows in the network like the fantastic Tech Buzz, China Econ Talk, uh, and the Middle Earth Podcasts. And if you value the whole wide range of content that is on SubChina, the best thing you can do is sign up for SubChina access. Uh, Your support makes it possible for us to keep bringing you the reporting, the conversations like this one, the videos, the all of it. Uh, So, recommendations. Last time, Sam, you had a Great recommendation! I actually took you up on it. Sabrina, the teenage witch. I, I sat and binged that thing. It was great. It was great. It was really pretty cool. Check it out on Netflix. It showed up and. Then, uh, so it's not, Can it's, you top that?
0: Yeah, okay. This is a show. It's a. It's a. It's a comedy called Catastrophe. It's a British comedy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And
0: my husband and I actually watch it as a form of therapy
1: because it just like
0: gets to the heart of all of the like terrible, miserable, but also beautiful, joyful parts of having a life partner. And um, it's it's just wonderful, and I highly recommend that, that's, it.
1: I saw uh, parts of the first season that was great. It's just sort of a hookup, that, that um, sort of a drunken hookup that ends up in a pregnancy and then a marriage, right? Yeah,
0: and it's right, sort of right. alternating catastrophes throughout right. uh, the years to come after that.
1: It's British, right?
0: It's British, actually. But
1: it's the, the American we, guy, oh, it's an American woman in a, Yes, right. and right. the
0: only reason I've watched it is we love it so much that my husband uses this sort of VPN and whole system so he can sort of tunnel in and watch it live in the UK. Uh-huh. We're not streaming it illegally. I just want to say that for the record. <laughs> sure
1: you are. <laughs> uh, sure you're not. Sure you're not. Okay, so my my recommendation. I, I unfortunately I can't top that. Uh, a, a book that I, I know I should have read ages ago, uh, and it's been recommended to me many times, and I'm finally gotten around to to uh, plowing through. It's James C. Scott, Seeing Like a State. Who has anyone here read that book? Seeing Like a State. It's it's amazing. Uh, it 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 talks about and the focus is on uh, how high modernist uh, mentalities of state ruin everything. How they just how how, how uh, they take on these gigantic projects. Uh, like the Great Leap Forward, or like collectivization in in, in Russia, these are maybe the aptness of it. But even things like city redesign, uh, like the the city of Brasilia in in, in Brazil, uh, these ideas that that are imagined utopian worlds that that never fit with the messy realities and result in enormous human suffering. Uh, there's the opening chapter of it is about. Forest management in 19th century Germany. I mean, you you couldn't imagine. It sounds like, you know, what could that possibly have in relation? But it talks about how they created this monoculture of Norwegian spruces and cleared out all the undergrowth. And, you know, it was just because they could only see forest land in terms of the the board feet of lumber that it was going to generate. And in doing so, they ended up just impoverishing the soil, making, I mean, just ruining forestry for for ages to come. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Uh, But fascinating book. And uh, I am, as somebody who has gushed enthusiastically about some kind of technocratic projects in China, I am definitely chastened a bit now. So uh, very good book. I highly recommend it. Sam, once again, what a delight to have you on the show. Uh, And we'll be, you know, again, talking about technology topics a lot in months to come, and there's no one better to, to have on. So let's hear it for Sam. And I'll take it out. The Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn and edited by Jason McRonald and by me. Special thanks this week to our, our generous hosts at this anonymous office building in, uh, in, in Midtown Manhattan that we are occupying. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Sison Seneca Business Brief, The Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, china Talk the Top and Middle Earth. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.